Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. Today on Indigenous Peoples Day, we explore the plight and prospects of unrepresented peoples around the world with Ralph Bunch III, the grandson of the namesake of our institute, Dr. Ralph Bunch, who was Undersecretary General of the UN and winner of the 1950 Nobel Peace Prize. Ralph Bunch III is General Secretary of the Brussels-based Unrepresented Nations and Peoples Organization, UNPO, an international membership organization established to facilitate the voices of unrepresented and marginalized nations and peoples worldwide. UNPO members consist of indigenous peoples, minorities, and other nations and peoples that are not fully represented in domestic and international governance structures in accordance with their right to self-determination. He was elected General Secretary of UNPO in September 2018 and received his responsibilities in January 2019. Ralph Bunch III speaks to us today from Brussels. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, John. Great, great to have you with us. Um, so uh, I guess the first question is to ask you about your organization, the Unrepresented Nations and Peoples Organization, uh, which consists of members of unrepresented groups in the sense that these groups have not been able to achieve quote-unquote, self-determination. Can you tell us more about the organization and what it does? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, we were founded in 1991 um, at the initiative of uh, three different peoples from around the world. One was the Tibetan people um, and the Tibetan government in exile. Uh, another was the Uyghur people, so um, the people who are living now, as, as you know, in concentration camps in, in China. Um, and the third was the Congress of Estonia, which was um, a, a, an exile parliament um, for the Estonian people during the Soviet occupation. We were founded in, in 91 as, as uh, the, the, the Cold War was ending and, and there was this great hope that uh, the, the end of the Cold War would unfreeze the process of granting peoples the right to self-determination. That had really, you know, it took a, had, had a lot of movement after the Second World War. Um, with with the creation of many new nation states, but was frozen and or, or, uh, for, for quite some time during the Cold War. And there was a hope that that with the end of the Cold War, the breakup of the Soviet Union, these issues around um, what the international community looks like and and, and who has representative representative representatives at the United Nations um, would would. Um, be back on the agenda, and that we could have a proper conversation about the the way the world was structured. That's how we were founded. Uh, the The idea of the organization was to, as, as you kind of said, to, to 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 give a voice to and to facilitate the voices of unrepresented people um, from around the world. And and I think the key thing for us there is the unrepresented um, in, in our name. Um, we aren't an organization that works for all people's rights to self-determination in the sense that we, we believe that all people have an equal right to self-determination. But the members of our organization, it's a membership-based organization, are, are, are people who have a valid um, uh, concern that the national government that sits has the seat 
that effectively represents them at the United Nations does not adequately represent them because they are, they are in some ways either de facto or de jure, so in law or in fact, disenfranchised at the national level, not fully in, in, involved in, the go- in governance that in, impacts them. Um, what we do as an organization um, is, is uh, two, are two things. So, so one is the membership-based aspect of what we do. So we currently have 46 members representing a little over 300 million people from around the world. And those members are very different in, in character. Some are, well, many of them are people's movements, indigenous people's movements, or, or other you know, movements or other, or other people who are seeking self-determination. Um, we've got political parties that represent those people. We've got governments in exile, governments in occupied territories, such as the Tibetan people, um, the majorities of the Crimean Tatar people. And then we've got governments as well, governments of, of states that are unrecognized, um, or of, of limited recognition, so states like Taiwan, Somaliland, and Abkhazia, um, as well as governments that are subnational, um, at a subnational level, that are seeking a better deal for their people domestically and an ability for their people to have a say in their in their status in the international community, and that includes the government of Guam and the District of Columbia, both in um, in the United States. Um, so what we do at that that part of our work is is that we provide a forum for our members. We we sort of founded at the great moment we were founded. There was the, we were founded in the Peace Palace in the Hague, as in, in many ways the press had sort of mentioned at the time, like an alternative United Nations, sort of recognizing that the UN and the boundaries of the nation state today uh, doesn't necessarily represent all of the people of the world. And so we were founded in this way as sort of an alternative United Nations, as a as a as a place for nations and peoples who were not represented in the United Nations to have their voices heard, to be listened to, um, and to show themselves as 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 valid members of the international community. So we pr- we provide that that role of of trying to help solidify and build that membership um, part of the organisation. And then the other thing that, that we that we that we do, so the other half of, of of our work or a bit more of that is more of a sort of think tank function for unrepresented people. So we, we do a lot of research um, around the right to self-determination, around what it means to be unrepresented, what the impact of being unrepresented is on people. Um, oftentimes, we sort of, we're, 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 we're guided by a saying that they have here in, in, in Brussels that, that they like to trot out every now and again, which is if you're not at the table, you're, you're on the menu. And a lot of our research is about that. It's about documenting what that means to be not at, not at the table, not to have the ability to sort of to to, to participate in decision making that impacts you. Um, and then the other part of what we do is um, capacity building. So we work with people's movements, NGOs, um, uh, foreign affairs uh, officers from states with limited recognition, a whole panoply of people around building their capacities to engage at the international level, to become diplomats for their people, even in a, in a society that doesn't recognize them as diplomats. Um, so those are the sort of big functions of, of what we do as an organization. It's fascinating work. Um, and it raises, I think, a kind of, if you like, philosophical question, at least in my mind, um, namely, what, it, what is self-determination and who is the self who determines, you know, whatever self-determination brings about? And I'm also struck by the fact that this, in some ways, as you know, we've been talking a little bit about your grandfather in some of our other recent podcasts and uh, the matter of self-determination was a very important one for him. So uh, I, I'd be interested if you could 
talk about, you know, I mean, as you may say, the United Nations in a certain sense ratifies the existence of uh, uh, whatever it is, 195 or so uh, nations, nation states around the world today. Uh, but the groups that you're talking about are nations in waiting, they're um, you know, how, how is there, how should we think about their future? Is it more about recognition within the countries in which they cur- currently find themselves? Or is this, uh, involve, you know, separation, which obviously is a complicated matter. So anyway. That- yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, it is the question for, for, for us as an organization. I, I think, um, I'll, I can talk a, a little bit about what the right means and what it doesn't mean just as a, a, at the beginning and then think through a little bit with you about you know who is the self and, and what is that um so obviously there are, there are a couple of different forms of self-determination actually i think often today people are used to thinking about the concept of self-determination almost as an individual right to sort of a thing about each individual person being able to 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 sort of live without um with with some degree of autonomy i think people think about that and talk about self-determination often in that individual capacity today um, the self-determination that we're dealing with at the UNPO is, 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 is not that. It's, it's, the, it's the idea of group self-determination. So self-determination of a people or of a nation. Um, what does the right mean? What does it doesn't mean? I, I think the very easiest thing to say um, straight up front is that the right to self-determination is not a right to independent statehood. And it's not something that we at the UNPO sort of you know, actively work on. Um, there, there is some... Uh, international law and more scholarly uh, thinking around when self-determination might lead to independent statehood, um, particularly for people who are living in systems of oppression where uh, the the future of a a sort of a home for those people within the broader nation state that currently exists um, is not potentially even is not possible. there, there are some sort of discussions about that, about sort of independent statehood and all of that. But, but within the UNPO, that's not what we are mostly talking about. Um, what we're mostly talking about is the right to self-determination as it's understood um, under international law. And that is sort of a twofold um, right. People talk about it in this. I, I, I actually don't really want to get into the way they talk about it because I don't, I don't really like it. But they talk about this, this the internal and external dimension of the right to self-determination. What they mean by that is that there's an internal dimension to self-determination which allows people, uh, which says that people should be able to control economic, social, and cultural development without outside interference. It's the concept of sort of internal self-determination. So having a say in, uh, in the issues that impact you around economic, social, and cultural development often having control over that. Um, and then there's an external dimension they, they, they talk about, which is uh, a, 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 the right for people to choose their status in, in, in the international community. Um, over, over, overlying all of that is sort of embedded in that is, is, the, is the right to, for all people to equally participate in governance and to participate in governance that, that, that impacts them. So very broadly, I mean, that's what it is, is that all people have this right to at some point choose your, your status in the, in the international community, but I think more importantly to control economic, social, and cultural development for themselves. And the, 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 the difficulty with the right to self-determination uh, is that all peoples have that right. All peoples have that right. And as a result of all peoples having that right, you have uh, areas of overlap where 
you, you the one person, one group of people exercise the right to self-determination and another group exercise the right to self-determination could involve things like natural resources um, that are common to both groups. Uh, and the, the, the tension in the right to self-determination is to try and find a way in which the society in which they're living can, can um, uh, meet both of those claims and to ensure that, that ultimately each of those groups feel that they have the ability to control economic, social, cultural development, um, albeit in the knowledge that, that some of that control needs to be shared. And because of that, oftentimes we are not talking about independence. Because ultimately, when when you're dealing with uh, these questions, I think the history of the world has shown that that sort of arbitrarily creating new states in those new states, you're never going to get a monoethnic society anyway. You're always going to get uh, societies made up of multiple different groups of people with competing claims for self-determination. So what we care about at the UNPO is to try and find ways in which societies can can meet those competing claims through the ability for people to participate in governance, through different mechanisms through which people can have a right to say what they um, to, in, in, in their, their issues around control. Where we do get into questions of independence is not on the right for any group to have an independent state, but rather the right of all peoples to have that belief and to seek it through nonviolent means. So we, we, we do a lot of work to try and protect people's um, freedom of opinion and expression around that issue, even if that issue isn't one that we necessarily say, yes, there's a right to an independent state. There, there, there isn't, but there's a right to, to seek it, um, to do it without, without, um, without, w- without punishment, um, as long as you're using nonviolent means. The, the, the difficult one is the second question that you, you asked there, John, which is, which is what's the self that does the self-determining. So I said at the beginning, so the self is not an individual in this, in this case. There, 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 are, there is a different way of thinking around the right to self-determination, around self-determination as a, as, a, as, a, as a concept that is an individual. But what we're talking about is group rights. And there it gets very difficult. So what is that group? Who, um, you know, who defines it? Is it... You know, is is it something that's that's bound only by territory? Is it bound by by identity? But then, if it's bound by identity, who who gets to choose um, what parts of your identity you subscribe to? So it's a very very difficult thing, and it's one that we'll talk about this. I, I know later, but about uh, about the, the indigenous people's rights, and it's it's a, it's also a very difficult one, where it's just been very hard to sort of determine in a very legalistic way what um, a group is that has that right. So what we talk about um, at the UNPO are peoples or nations bound by some shared affinity, um, whether it's territory, ethnicity, language, um, some some sort of cultural heritage, some sort of shared identity um, that, that as a result of that shared identity has, uh, has that right to to claim it, to claim self-determination. And the, 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 
the trick there is also to recognize that that people can have multiple identities. So I'm sitting here in Brussels in Belgium, where you've got you know the Walloon state and the Flanders state, and you've got uh, um, Flemish speakers, a Flemish speaking parliament and a French speaking parliament, and uh, actually a German, a little German territory as well. And all of these people have their individual rights as Flemish speakers or people inhabiting Flanders, which is two different things, um, or as French speakers or people who are inhabiting Wallonia. And also their identity as Belgians. And and within Belgium, they have rights to self-determination of their groups and internationally have rights to self-determination of their groups and of, uh, as, 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 a, as a Belgian. Um, so it's a very tricky concept, but, but it's one that's often about self-identification. And, and the importance of that is that you're trying to find and understand what it is that the people of the world, you know, it, identify by and, and how they can how we can create societies to, to meet their their ultimate goals because if you don't create societies that are able to meet those ultimate goals and to to, to, to protect those identities and, and shared histories um, you end up with a society that's fractured that, that tends towards violence and war and and and, and is unstable and and um, what we're working towards is a, is a stable peaceful world where people um, people's sort of needs and wants um, and their identities are protected. Well, Belgium is indeed uh, a sort of real test case for many of these kinds of problems. It's such a complicated place, as you, as you've just described, um, sharing you know with two arguable two nations, kind of based on language, shared religion, roughly speaking. Uh, but in any case, you know, it always seems like it's on the brink of collapse, and only recently uh, got a government together after a long time of conflict between controversy between those two sides that kept it from having really a, a proper functioning government. Um, but it reminds me, this discussion reminds me of uh, the early foundational work on multiculturalism of Will Kimlicka, who made a kind of basic distinction between, uh, you know, colonized or and immigrant minorities. Um, that is to say, you know, quote unquote, uh, indigenous people and immigrant uh, minorities. And, you know, he ascribed to indigenous groups a much different set of rights because, you know, their submersion, so to speak, as uh, minorities took place on the basis of an incursion of, you know, others, Europeans, who came and uh, took over where they were, whereas the immigrants came, you know, by and large, uh, in a voluntary way. So, um, so I wonder how you, I mean, I think this term indigenous peoples is really only 50 or so years old. And I wonder if you could say, you know, how you see the kind of distinction between these different types of groups, uh, and the sort of rights that they have, uh, based on their differing, you know, historical emergence, so to speak. And it's a very difficult one because it's very rare, and there are there are the the, the concept of indigenous people, just like self determination and what what is a group that, that has that right. The concept of indigenous people is still about self identification. Um, so even in of itself, it's actually hard to sort of pinpoint specifically what what it is that that, that, that where you're talking about it, and and you know you you, you kind of get you kind of got at this issue of okay, well you've got um, people who were there first and then people who were there um, later. And of course, 
you know, at some point in time, that is that is true. Uh, the difficulty is is that when you look at things historically, it's very rare that you have found people who haven't migrated at some point to where they are. Um, you could go back as far as you, you can keep going back and eventually you're going to find people who've migrated to a place. Um, and so, so in that, in that context it's very difficult. And, um, I would say that that's, so just talk very, before I go back to the sort of history of it, but to talk about and think about it in the context of Europe, um, they've gotten away with it now because in, in, in Europe, in the communities that we that we work with, you're not talking about indigenous people anymore. You're talking about autochthonous people, which is a which is a, a, a spin on the term, effectively. But it, it's a recognition that ultimately, in a place like Europe, everyone has been a migrant at some point and displaced somebody else at some point in history. It's very rare to find that, that where well, that's not the case. There's like the Sami up in up in um, uh, up in the Arctic, you know, um, Scandinavia that that have a sort of very strong claim um, to have not been sort of migrate, migrated in like others, but, but it's very rare. Um, and so internationally, there's a difficult term um, and, and one that has become more fractured, I think over time and it's becoming more difficult. I can talk a little bit about that as well. Um, so just to sort of step back on it, uh, quite right. So where does it come from? This idea of, of of indigenous people, how does it come about? I think the idea of people being displaced by incomers is sort of historical, right? So it's been it's it's, it's so historical. It, it um it, it's for a completely different type of analysis, um, one that you're probably better attuned to do there, John, with with your, your with, with looking at it from a historical standpoint. But but um uh, you know looking at it from the standpoint of rights, sort of where does it come from? And you can see discussions around this really emerging 1950s, um, particularly around the creation of, a, of, of an ILO, International Labour Organization Convention on Indigenous and Tribal Peoples' Rights, um, which, which happens in 1957. But these discussions are, on, are ongoing, and they're happening largely as a result of this process of decolonizing the world, where you're, you're, you're ending European empire. And at the end of European empire, you're creating states. But within those states, there are multiple different peoples. And, and, and it's possible to identify within those states of multiple different peoples, groups that, are, um, that have been there for a longer period of time, whose culture and history and identity is inexorably tied to the land, the territory that they're living in. And that the, 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 the question of displacement um, whether it's like physical displacement, as in like moving people off the territory, or displacement in sort of a, in, a, in a different sense of of not being able to use your language and your culture um, because you've got a, a dominant culture that's sort of doing something else and go and governing the society, um, leads to the need to have a discussion around around a different group of people's rights to self-determination and that's indigenous people so and, and, and understanding how that might be different to the broader concept of how self-determination is is being used at that time to create new nation states as they decolonize the world largely around the boundaries that were that were created by the european and actually and, and, and American empires um, using those sort of territorial boundaries and putting people together makes people start thinking about indigenous peoples and in, in, in a very different way um, and uh, it's 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 there for a, you know a long time and these discussions are going on for a long time 
why you have this ILO convention from 1957. I think it was very quickly understood that that convention was 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 like very quickly out of date or not um, uh, or, or not really addressing the issues um, around specifically around things like land rights and 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 um, culture and identity in the way that they needed to be addressed. And so this stuff comes back on the agenda really in the 1980s um, at the international level. And you've got this very, very long period um, of, I think, well over 20 years of trying to get um, a declaration at the United Nations level on indigenous peoples um, and also to find uh, uh, a forum for indigenous peoples, for them to have their say at the United Nations level, which ultimately in, in, in the 2000s leads to the creation of a UN permanent forum on indigenous issues and a declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples. And that, and, and, and that alongside a, a sort of a revamp of the ILO convention that happened a bit earlier, starts giving more sense and more meat and weight to the rights of what indigenous peoples have when it comes to their ability to control governance in their own territories, to have, you know, protection of their land rights, their cultural identity, and all of those things, and how they might fit in the context of a broader society. Um, and, and there's been some more attempts to sort of flesh that out. So in 2016, there's an American Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So, so that's the inter-American system. Um, one of the nice pieces about that was the process through which that was drafted, and the government of Costa Rica um, actually stood up and did the one thing that we would love to see governments do all around the all around the world in many different ways, but stood up and gave their seat to the indigenous people of Costa Rica to be able to sit and negotiate that declaration. Um, so this, these things have sort of been been ongoing for for, for quite some time in in, in that sense. Um, that's I would say the sort of way we've got to where we are today. The challenge I think of, of where we are today is that we've not litigated or not litigated, but we've not we've not worked out. And, and finalized our understanding of what it means to be indigenous. And as a result of that, there is quite some tension um, within both the communities themselves, well, within the communities themselves, as to who is indigenous, who gets to come to the permanent forum on indigenous issues and all of these different things. And governments in authoritarian states have done a really great job of playing on those um, those um, those divides and 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 actually, funnily enough, I, I I would say where I'm most worried about with the UNPO, not within our organisation, but sort of in my role at the UNPO, is, is is driving a wedge between communities as a result of this sort of challenge around what's the definition of of an indigenous person and having different groups saying, well, I'm indigenous and you're not indigenous and you can come and I can't come and and um, and, and creating sort of an, an environment where solidarity, I think, is 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 breaking down a little bit um, as a result of this 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 definitional issue. Uh, so for us at the UNPO, we much rather talk about the rights and what it means to be unrepresented um, uh, than the specific sort of are you a minority? Are you autochthonous? Are you indigenous? We don't like to particularly get into the question of people's self-identification and try to decide for them what they are and what rights sort of inert to them as a result under the international treaties. This is a, this is a bit of a problem um, in that regard. What we like to talk about and think about is that, that what binds people, irrespective that we work with, irrespective of how they are identified, um, is this, this, this sense of exclusion from national governance 
an exclusion from governance over the issues that impact them, whether or not they're indigenous or autochthonous, minorities or whatever we, you might call people, and actually sometimes majority groups. Um, and, and that for us is how we try to address that issue. And I think what, what we are quite unique, uh, what makes us quite unique is that approach enables us to have a forum that includes governments, indigenous communities, uh, minority communities, or minority communities who would say that they're autochthonous communities, um, political parties, people's movements, majority communities who think they're excluded. And, and to be able to include all of those together and have people's uh, create solidarity through the understanding of this shared condition of being unrepresented or f- effectively disenfranchised at the national level. Well, this is fascinating. Um, as you may know or may not know, I you know did a book about 15 years ago about the idea of reparations for historical injustices. And one of the things that struck me in doing that work was the way in which these efforts to rectify wrongdoing from the past has this tendency to reassert the lines of difference upon which those wrongs were initially perpetrated. And so you have the kind of problem that you've just described of tensions between different groups based on, you know, the question of whether or not they deserve, you know, some kind of special attention. Uh, You know, in the book, I talk about uh, a scene from the show, The West Wing, which may or may not be familiar to you, but uh, was, uh, you know, an attempt to kind of uh, portray a um, sort of more cleaned up version people thought of the Clinton White House. And um, it um, showed at one point a a scene where, uh, I've forgotten whether it was the chief of staff or something, is interviewing a black guy that they have uh, nominated to be assistant attorney general for for, uh, civil rights. And um, they're having this discussion because he's uh, recently been found to have uh, uh, written a blurb for a book called The Debt, or no, sorry, The Unpaid Debt, uh, which was clearly a play on a book by Rand- a guy named Randall Robinson called The Debt, which was about what you know uh, Americans owed to you know the descendants of slaves, basically, and. Uh, turns out that the uh, chief of staff or whatever he was is, you know, Jewish and says, well, I'd, you know, I'd love to give you the money, but, you know, it seems that somebody stole my father, my grandfather's uh, wallet in Auschwitz. So it sort of portrayed these tensions between groups that have, you know, perfectly legitimate uh, claims to some kind of reparation, uh, but, you know, can, can create these sort of divisions. And I guess the question really fundamentally is, um, can one say, well, what we're really going to do is treat everybody as citizens equally and that that's our goal and we're going to de-emphasize or, or sort of bracket the peculiarities of how they got to be here and seek to treat everybody, you know, in some equal way. Um, and, you know, is that a more ultimately a more uh, productive route to go? Or is there, I mean, I think, you know, the response to this would be certain people suffer or uh, experience oppression on the basis of these uh, categories and experiences from the past and only some, you know, affirmative, so to speak, attention to those, uh, experiences, uh, can, can properly achieve social justice in effect. So I wonder what you would say about that. 
So I think I think ultimately you have to look at um, well the ultimate goal is exactly the, the 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 I guess the former piece right so the ultimate goal is a is a is a society where everybody can be treated completely equally and it's completely blind um, that's the ultimate goal I think I think you 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 have to get to a place where you're there but practically I think it's 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 unrealistic to think that you can just sort of start afresh and 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 create. Um, a level playing field where everyone is actually practically and truly equal um, without addressing those historical injustices um, through, yeah, through some, I guess, as, as you call it, so in, 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 I think in Europe, you would, you would call it positive discrimination in America. It's, a, it's affirmative action. But through, through some, some, you know, way in which you can try to redress historical imbalances. If you don't do that, so you look at, I mean, you, you know, from the United States, but you have questions about voting rights voting behavior if you don't address historical imbalances can you can you actually get to a point where all groups in the united states vote equally not equally in terms of the, the to, to who they vote for but in, in equal proportion with each other without without having barriers for voting um it's very very difficult otherwise you know if you haven't gone back and addressed some of the, the, the those issues so i think i think you 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 ultimately need to have an individual case specific um response to each individual issue and it's one that we deal with really a lot at the unpo so with this forum get everyone together we try to have everyone you know uh, work with each other because they want to have a resolution on a specific topic or whatever it might be and the challenge is always to 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 be able to recognize that that everyone's situations are fundamentally different and so that the, the responses to those situations aren't e- aren't going to be the same. There's no one cookie cutter approach to, to dealing with those issues, but that there are also like broader systemic challenges that they all face and that you can, that you can try and um, try and address. And so uh, I think, yeah, I think ultimately you, 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 you have to just say their goal is pure equality with no need for, as you call it in the United States, affirmative action. But the reality of that, it's just, it's, it's not going to happen that, 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 pure equality without addressing the historical injustices in some fundamental way. And what we would say at the UNPO, because we deal with a lot of societies that have had a lot of conflict inside them, and what we would say is without being able to sit down at a minimum, even if you're not addressing it through some positive policy state, you know, standpoint, but at a minimum to have a process of reckoning where these, these questions are openly discussed and not suppressed in some way. Um, at a minimum, you must have that, and it's the role and responsibility of government, government everywhere, to do that. And that's part of the responsibility of governments when they deal with the right to self determination. This is one of the ones that I like to talk about. The right to self determination is a right of people, but it's also an obligation on states. So, what is that obligation on states when it relates to self determination? And the obligation on states is to facilitate the ability for all people to participate on an equal basis doesn't mean necessarily completely 100% the same on all issues but on a on a basis of of uh, that's grounded in inequality in governance and that facilitation process might mean that that government might have to take 
specific policy measures to enable and facilitate a group that has been marginalized to the extent that the exclusion from education, the exclusion from economic opportunities, the exclusion from voting ha- ha- prevents that, them from being able to truly participate on an equal basis. That government might have a responsibility to do that. The government also has a responsibility to ensure that the questions around a uh, the society, the pluralism in the society, to recognize there's no such thing as a, as a mono-ethnic society, that all societies are pluralistic in the sense that those questions must be addressed and discussions must be had about those things. And you can't just forget about them and just let them, let them sit forever because if you let them sit forever, they fester and they turn into what I think you're seeing there in the United States right now um, with, with, with what's happening with Black Lives Matter movement and the counter reaction that you're seeing. And, and, and it leads to that sort of frightening moment because, because it hasn't been necessarily the, the reckoning that was needed. Well, you've led directly into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is precisely about the recent, uh, wave of some call it, you know, racial reckoning that's been going on in the United States and from there, you know, echoing, rippling out to the rest of the world, certainly to Europe uh, and its colonial pasts. Uh, I wonder, you know, how you see that relating to the kinds of issues that you've been at, you address in UNPO and how you think this is all going to play out. It is directly relevant to the things that we address in UMPO, directly relevant globally, directly relevant in the United States. So I said before, we've got the District of Columbia and Guam as members of the UNPO. Um, the, these are groups, that, these are territories in the United States that are majority minority. I hate the way to put it that way, but it's the best way I can say it pretty quickly. But majority minorities in those in those areas. And these people are disenfranchised. They they cannot. They don't have uh, equal representation in Congress. They don't have equal representation in, in um, uh, yeah in Congress. So the people in Guam can't uh, have no voting for the, for president. I mean, it's just um, not a, a an equal situation. And that has happened in large part because of a lack of um, uh, of a historical reckoning. So look at Guam. A lack of historical reckoning with the fact, the very fact that the U.S. was an imperial nation. That, that, that has never happened. The, the, the U.S. has never really thought of itself as, a, as an imperial nation, but it is. You know, it, it was. It had huge land masses outside after the Spanish-American War. It had the Philippines. It had Guam. It had other places. It has Puerto Rico today. So there's this lack of reckoning of, of the society as a colonial nation, as well as a reckoning of a society as a nation that had re- wreaked such havoc on, on Native uh, American populations, as well as uh, the, a society that has a history of, of slavery and, and segregation. Um, these, these, you know, reckonings need to, need to have, have have happened. They have happened at different stages in in, in the U.S., um, and that's a, that's a good thing. But they've never they, they they've not taken place in the way that you'd, you'd like to see them. And and in one area in particular, I think, uh, and that's violence. Uh, the 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 critical condition about having those discussions is that you're taking violence off the table, and that you're having these conversations without violence, but. I mean, you're seeing it right now on the streets in, in, in the US, the, 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 the counter reactions, the violent counter reactions that are happening to be with, when people are out there trying to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, talk about racial injustice in the United States, and you're seeing violence meted out in response, whether it's state-sponsored violence or violence coming from um, militias or I don't even know what you, what you, want, what you want to call these, these groups, um, that is no way to deal with the issue. And what makes me worried about the moment that's happening in the United States 
in a way it's sort of a heartening moment because people are trying to have these discussions but the way in which they are turning violent is frightening to me it it harkens back to the way in which segregation was imposed violently and slavery was imposed violently and it and it and it raises a real concern as to how we would ever I'm a US citizen so I just I don't listen to my accent but um how we will ever in the US um resolve these issues if we're going to default to using violence in these situations well i certainly share your concern about that and <clears throat> once again you've led directly into the next question i wanted to ask you and that of course has to do with the american election and you've talked about some of the very worrisome developments just of the recent past the role of whatever they are militias or armed uh vigilantes um, and the possible uh, kidnapping and potentially worse of a, of a sitting governor. Um, so these are all obviously very worrisome developments, but uh, I wonder if you could say a little bit about, you know, how from the point of view of Brussels, how you think Europeans are, you know, looking at the election and the situation in the United States more generally. So we have an, a sense of how we're being viewed from outside, which I think is very important. I would say, you know, it's a, it's a hard one because, you know, sitting in Brussels today, it's hard to escape the, the difficulties that we're having in the European Union right now um so it's hard to obviously you know everybody has always got their eye on what's happening in the united states it's an incredibly important um power and the decisions that get taken impact the world but in in so many ways what you're seeing in the united states is being played out everywhere else in the world whether it's in brazil whether it's in india whether it's in in europe there are there are so many different things that are happening that are fundamentally changing the way in which we're looking at these these institutions that we thought were established. Um, so I'm referring to Brexit to a certain extent, um, but I'm also referring to the, the great existential crisis that the European Union has right now in trying to understand how are we going to respond to the rise of illiberalism in Eastern Europe? So efforts to pack the judiciary and um, in in Poland, efforts to to deal with them um, and, and to restrict civil society elsewhere um, in Eastern Europe. How are we going to deal with the fundamental sort of repression of of the Catalan movement in Spain and and the way in which the Spanish government has 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 taken an extremely heavy hand to it um, to the extent that. Uh, the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention is, is having to call out the fact that the Deputy Minister of Justice in Spain has said that they're going to decapitate their political rivals um, as it relates to the Catalan question, to decapitate them by their, their actions. And I think this is causing such a fundamental fracture within Europe that, that while there is ultimately concern about making sure that, 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 that the US has a coordinated and coherent you know, uh, government government and and policies going forward that that actually ultimately europe itself is is too busy looking internally to be able to deal with it and for us that's frightening not frightening necessarily because of what's happening in the united states but it's frightening because of what's happening in uh, the people's republic of china and what the chinese communist party is doing and we're frightened about that that we're looking internally we're navel gazing in europe in the united states as to the way our societies are running, 
when we're we're missing out on the fact that you've got a a new empire that's being formed that's using economic development programs to push out across Southeast Asia to 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 um, push out over South Asia um, that is that is that is you know putting millions of Uyghurs into concentration camps that is going back into Tibet, occupied Tibet and doing the same thing again in Tibet, putting people in concentration camps, that's doing it to the people of Inner Mongolia, that's threatening Taiwan, that's taking over Hong Kong uh, in violation of, of international agreements. And all the while, we're looking internally and worrying about ourselves and not looking at this giant threat in a very coherent manner, whether it's the United States or in or in um, the European Union, and this is what worries us, at least at the UNPO, is that that we are sort of sleepwalking towards a global conflict because we're allowing once again a totalitarian party, whether it's now it's the Chinese Communist Party, before it was the Nazi Party and the the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, to you know spread out and bring repression and and genocide everywhere else. So anyway, it's a long answer that that doesn't answer your question directly, but but I think the big point is that we're both. Both in Europe and the United States, we're we're so worried about what's happening internally now that we're not addressing the big global issues. We're not addressing climate change. We're not we're not addressing the Chinese Communist Party, and I think that's my big fear, at least, that at, at the end of that we get back to where we were a hundred years ago, and it's a very very scary world. Well, on that uplifting note, <laughs> uh, I want to sorry, thank that's okay. <laughs> Uh, I mean, certainly the matter of China is something that we have to pay more attention to in this podcast, uh, but uh, more generally as a as a society, I, I totally agree that this is something that needs more attention than it's really been getting. Um, but on that note, as I say, I want to thank Ralph Bunch III for taking time to discuss the, uh, the activities of his organization, the Unrepresented Nations and People's Organization and its activities and uh, more broadly the situation in the world with regard to indigenous and minority peoples. Uh, I also want to thank Christo Voinov for his technical assistance. This is John Torpy saying thanks so much for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.